0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of your new podcast, The Hemonc Pulse, the podcast that is dedicated to all things hematology, everything in the world of hematology, from clinical trials to new advances to controversies and debates, and to discussions about healthcare policy, drug pricing, and everything that impacts patient care in the world of hematology. The Hemang Pulse is your new favorite podcast coming to you from blunt cancers today. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting this first episode and many future episodes that will be coming to you. It's very special to start the Hemang Pulse during the annual American Society of Hematology meeting in the beautiful city of New Orleans, Louisiana. We could not have picked a better venue or a better time to start this podcast. You need to keep the lines of communication with me and tell me about topics, ideas, what do you want to hear in this podcast? Every single email, every single text, every single tweet will be answered timely and will be taken seriously. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan and follow me there for more updates on the Monk Pulse. You could also send me an email to at outlook.com and let me know any ideas that you may have Pertaining to the podcast. The first few episodes of the Hemon Pulse are going to tackle new updates that have been presented during the American Society of Hematology meetings. I'm going to bring thought leaders in the fields of leukemia, myeloma, lymphoma, myeloproliferative neoplasms, and myelodysplasia and try to dissect what are the clinically relevant data and abstracts that have been presented during the American Society of Hematology meeting. I really appreciate you tuning in. Your support is going to mean the world to me, to the producers, to the organizers, and to the sponsors. Welcome. Welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that's going to bring you all the news that you need in the world of hematology. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, well, what's better than to start the first episode ever of the HEMonk Pulse with two phenomenal, unbelievable, amazing guests coming to me live from Houston from MD Anderson Cancer Center. I'm very, very grateful to uh to be joined by uh doctors Alija Bohr and Hagop Kantargian, who will introduce themselves in a little bit. Uh, and the goal is really to talk about what intrigued. from the abstracts are being presented at the American Society of Hematology. We won't have a lot of time to make full introductions because these two guys probably can spend an hour telling us about their accomplishments, but Hagob won't remember. The first time I probably met you, Hagob, was um, almost 20 years ago at one of the George Washington Board Review courses, Uh, and you probably still do them. And I I could tell you, nobody was able to simplify. At the time you were giving a talk on, I don't know if it's ALL or CML, but it wasn't AML. Because AML, I think, was Marty Tallman was giving that episode. It was so, you simplified such a complex topic. And I felt very, very good about it. And since then, I've been following your work. And uh, I'm very honored to have you on this podcast. I'm one of your biggest fans and biggest admirers. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit about you and what you do and... um, Uh, day in and day out, and a couple of things they may not know unless they listen to this podcast.
1: So uh, first, I'm an admirer of you as you are of mine. Uh, I've come to MD Anderson in um, 1982, and I've stayed since there. And uh, I have only one mission to treat leukemia and perhaps to die treating leukemia. Uh, And hopefully that uh, most of the leukemias will be Either curable or cured by the time I die. Ellie, uh, a little
0: bit uh, uh, about uh, you and uh, uh, tell us a little bit what's, uh, you know, and how do you end up here?
2: Well, my name is Ellie Jabour. Uh, I arrived to Anderson. Dr. Kitar recruited me back as a fellow in 2003, quote unquote, for a few years of fellowship. I did my fellowship. There, I stayed there since then. And, you know, working with him has been the best thing I could have ever dreamt, had ever dreamed about. Essentially, I have to live at 600 miles per hour speed. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it has nothing been, it it has been great.
0: So we decided to cover AML and ALL. And in all disclosure, we can agree that it's impossible to cover everything. I mean, you know, there's goodness, thousands of abstracts out there. So I promised my listeners we'll focus a little bit on the ones that we think are very clinically relevant, maybe close to either changing how they treat patients, things like that. So let's start with an abstract in acute myeloid leukemia. Hagop, you want to take that uh, for AML and maybe share something that uh, intrigued
1: you? Or Sure. I'm going to give you a broad idea about what intrigued me in AML, and I'm going to divide them into three categories. The first category is the risk prediction, and there's a lot at uh, ASH about risk prediction, and it mostly focuses on the cytogenetic and molecular features and the new ELN 2022 recommendations. The bottom line from all of this is that uh, one can combine the cytogenetics and few of the molecular uh, profiles Uh, to uh, divide the patients into uh, different risk groups. What the ELN and uh, those predictive models do not achieve is two things. One is in the older patients, even though they may or may not categorize them into different risk groups, those patients do much worse. And so those risk models Uh, do not account for the features related to the patients or the organ dysfunctions. So they are very useful and people should get acquainted with them. Uh, And the most important findings are things we have known. For example, complex karyotype is worse. And some of the molecular abnormalities are very important. TP53 is adverse. NPM1 in, in general is favorable. And there are fewer others that may be relevant, like in our experience, the PTPN11, uh, and uh, which is adverse, and the MECOM, which would be the inversion three. So one could divide the patients into those risk factors. And what we need to do is account now for the targeted therapies that could change the outcome among these subsets, particularly the FLIT-3 and IDH inhibitors which seem to move a lot of the patients who used to be adverse into the favorable. The second large broad view in acute myeloid leukemia from the ASH is in both the younger and older patients, we're starting to move to the addition of targeted therapies to uh, chemotherapy. So if we take the younger patients, you will see a lot of regimens with either 3 plus 7 or the newer regimens like the FLAG-IDA or the CLIA or the cladribine high-dose mitoxantron, where people are adding either the old gemtuzumab ozogamycin and showing better results, or they are adding venetoclax and they are also showing better results. So the gemtuzumab, the venetoclax, the FLIT3 inhibitors, and the IDH inhibitors are going to stay with us and be incorporated into the standards of care in the younger and older patients. Similarly, in the older patients or the older unfit, there were a lot of studies uh, looking at the combinations of hypomethylating agents and venetoclax uh, and showing that the results are better than the hypomethylating agents alone. I want to highlight two studies from our institution. One is with what we call the CLIA regimen and venetoclax, which we updated with a much larger number of patients. And we're showing a marrow CR rate in excess of 90%, and now a two-year survival rate in uh, of about uh, 70 to 80%. And then a new regimen in the older unfit AML. So we are stuck with the hypomethylating agent venetoclax at MD Anderson, we moved to what we call the triple nucleoside regimen, which is cladribine lodosaracin venetoclax, alternating with azacitidine venetoclax. Again, now we have a much larger number of patients than what was just published. We're still getting marocr rates in excess of 85% and two year survival rates of 65%, which is significantly higher than what was reported in. Uh, in the randomized trial of uh, Azacytidine with or without venetoclax, The third portion that you will see at ASH in acute myeloid leukemia are the novel strategies. And the one that uh, attracts my attention are the menin inhibitors, which are maturing very nicely, showing that several menin inhibitors, at least two of them, are giving very good results in patients with refractory relapse acute myeloid leukemia with either uh, MLL uh, translocations, translocation 11Q23, or with NPN1 mutations. So I think the menin inhibitors are targeted therapies which are here to stay with us, either in combination with intensive chemotherapy or with low-intensity therapy. Then you see some additional uh, therapies, for example, with Uh, targeted antibodies that target CD123, like the IMGN632, Uh, some studies with uh, immune therapies like CD123 or CD33 bites, but these have very modest effects, so they did not attract as much attention. So three general features, risk models and predictions, which are important, but do not advance the therapy uh, unless we combine the old regimens with the newer targeted therapies. Then you see the large body on therapy of acute myeloid leukemia, either younger combining intensive chemotherapy with venetoclax, 3 inhibitors, IDH inhibitors, or in the older unfit, starting to use triple regimens with hypomethylating agents, venetoclax, and another targeted therapy. Uh, Among the novel strategies, I highlight the many inhibitors because I think they are going to be very important, but again, a slew of other novel strategies which uh, appear to um, uh, be perceived as important, but I have seen only a modest effect so far from all of these.
0: Thank you, Hagop, and uh, I am going to ask you some questions about these uh, in a little bit just to uh, get some dialogue about them. Uh, but before we do that on acute myeloid leukemia, I'm gonna move to Ellie a little bit to see what intrigued him uh, intrigued him at, uh, at ASH. And then we'll go back, I have a couple of questions pertaining to these categories in, of AML and ALL, but I love the way you, de- you divided them uh, because at least for my simple mind, I'll be more organized in the couple of questions I have for you. Um, Ellie in ALL, um, uh, what uh, what uh, captured your interest?
2: Uh, great. Uh, thank you, Shadi. I want to summarize my the effort I reviewed from ASH this year. Again, I will not be able to cover everything, as you said at the beginning. But number one, I'd like to highlight that in uh, the older ALL patients, uh, there is big data reported from the German group and the French where older patients have a worse outcome where survival is still uh uh, behind what we've seen in an adult patient and a younger patient because of this NCR and more aggressive biology. And to improve on this outcome, uh, investigators are using immunotherapy into the frontline. At MD Anderson, uh, we did uh, develop the mini-CVD in a frontline patient with ARL, and we reported survival at five years of 50%. At this ASH meeting, we do see update and presentation from a German-European integrating immunotherapy into the frontline. And Blina into the frontline with promising results and uh, improvement of uh, uh, survival. Again, these are uh, single, uh, multi center, single uh, single arm trials, but at least highlighting the point that if we're going to improve the outcome for older patients, we need to integrate immunotherapy into the frontline. This is for the older, uh, for younger patients as well. we're, in, we're adding blenatumumab, map into the frontline uh, setting. There's data will be presented at, at the ASH meeting from MD Anderson as well, where we had hyperceva, the map into the frontline survival of 85%. Now we added map as well, and now we have 100% survival. Of course, the follow-up is still short, but what the message I'd like to make here is uh, the old days of intensive chemotherapy for three and four years are past. And the future is to integrate immune therapy and to monitor our patients very carefully using NGS technique to assess the depth of the response and tailor therapy accordingly. So, at ASH meeting, there will be several presentations toward this uh, be presented. Uh, second uh, bullet i like to highlight is the Philadelphia positive ARL. The role of transplant, we need or we do not need it. And there are several presentations at the ASH meeting showing that if you get into MRD negativity, uh, by PCR or by NGS or whatever you want, a transplant is not needed. So the question of transplant is settling here where it won't help much in somebody responding. Still at the ASH meeting, there are several abstracts where they highlight some poor biology, among them Icarus deletion or Icarus deletion plus where the outcome is still poor for these patients. And toward this goal, we have a presentation with Oblunetimab and ponatinib, which is a totally chemotherapy-free regimen. No chemotherapy at all in 43 patients who received the Blina and achieve and achieved a CMR of 85%, 88% by NGS, and a survival at two years and a half, 95%, with only one patient receiving transplant. Of course, there was no in-depth assessment for Ecarus Plus, but when you have everybody responding and a survival of 95%, the deduction is such a regimen can overcome the poor biology. In a PHPLA as well, there are some abstract about what we call CML like picture, because we aim to assess uh, this, to, to, we aim to induce a complete molecular emission. And we do so by measuring the, the BCR able by RT PCR. And we know today there are certain patients where mainly P210 transcripts, they do not go into CMR by RT PCR, BCR able, but the lymphoblasts are gone. Therefore, we need to assess response by using. An NGS technique assessing the immunoglobulin receptor, and this patient, they go into complete molecular emission and transplant will not be needed. So they have a CML like picture where the the, the the transcript is identified in the myeloid cells. So we need to keep them on TKI, and this patient do not need a transplant. Now, moving forward in a PHY, the question is if we want get rid of transplant, can we shorten therapy for how long we give TKIs? And here we're implementing NGS prospectively. To assess the dynamic of the response, the depth of the response, and the duration of response, maybe patients who achieve an NGS negativity sustained for a few years be able be candidate for treatment discontinuation down the road. That is will be a matter of clinical trials. A third bullet I like to highlight is MRD assessment. Assessing MRD by flow cytometry has its limitation. We and others have shown that this technique, forty percent of patients who are MRD negative. Uh, by flow are still MRD positive by NGS and they can relapse. At be the presentation assessing the importance of MRD assessment by NGS, that can give you a depth of assessment to 10 to minus 6, 10 to minus 7, and these patients who reach this level of response are eventually outliers who will not relapse. Therefore, we need to integrate biology but assess MRD by noble techniques. Speaking of MRD, at the ASH will be two presentation assessing anitizumab, for Pishwara MRD-positive. Andritizumab is a CD22 antibody conjugated to calicheamicin. Two presentation, one from MD Anderson and one from uh, Italian uh, expert. Uh, they show this drug is effective in uh, eradicating minimal disease, as soplena has been shown. It, uh, from a series from MD Anderson, we have around 28 patients. The MRD, the conversion to MRD-negativity is around 70%, and the, the two-year survival is 75%. In an Ita- Italian study, they have 39 patients. They report a lower response rate of 40%, but they give, on average, one course of map. And for patients who ph positive, do not get TKI till later on. That means the treatments are not identical and maybe suboptimal. But here again, highlight the role of map. The last category I'd like to highlight to you, Shadi, today is the alpha We have the blina, the ionotizumab, and we'll still see CAR T cells are being offered and we have an update of the Zuma tree trial uh, will be presented at the Ash meeting. We have a survival of 20 months or 18 months high price to pay, but we know today these drugs are not competitive. We need to use them in a more optimal fashion in a combination sequentially, because by doing so, we can induce higher response rate early on and then car can be given as a consolidation thereafter where it has been shown to be safer With more optimal outcome. And maybe in the future, CAR T would replace allotransplant. These are uh, the after I reviewed, and uh, this is my summary of them.
1: I think there are two most important messages in ALL from the ASH meeting that I deduct. The first one is for 50 years, we have stuck with the tradition of using intensive chemotherapy in ALL for three years. Since 1970, this is what we've done, intensive chemotherapy with 15 agents given over three years. And that model has been very successful in childhood ALL with a cure rate of 80%. And it gives a five-year survival in adult ALL of about 50%. And that's why people are very reticent to challenge this tradition, because they are worried that if you change it very quickly, some patients may be adversely affected. And I think this is completely incorrect because we do have now novel antibodies which are targeted, which as single agents are superior to the intensive chemotherapy in refractory relapse setting. So now there are a lot of single arm trials from single institutions like MD Anderson and from cooperative trials that are showing significantly higher results when uh, investigators are using uh, some form of chemotherapy. It doesn't have to be the old intensive chemotherapy to which they add blinatumumab and inotuzumab. So I think we have to uh, absorb this kind of information and decide Are we going to stay with randomized trials, which could slow the pace of research and discoveries? Or are we going to revert to a Bayesian approach, where we do single-arm trials and modify them according to the experience and the results? And the second very important point is the following. Today, in community practice, we use the novel therapies as per the FDA approved, So, Blenatumumab and inotuzumab as single agents in refractory relapse ALL, and the CAR T cells in refractory relapse active ALL. So, we're paying a lot of money for these very novel strategies with a very modest benefit. So, I think we should also break from the tradition of following the Recommended approval and move to studies that could could give us better results for the money that we're paying, a better treatment value. And I think the better treatment value is going to be by combining those novel antibodies, blenatumumab, inotuzumab, with the standard chemotherapy in the frontline and salvage setting, and perhaps start investigating the CAR T cells, not for active relapse disease, which gives you a potential cure rate of 20% in the adults, 40% in the children, but use them in the setting of minimal residual disease or in subsequent remission, as we do for allogeneic transplant, which will hopefully give us a much better cure rate than with the single agent activity.
0: This is really very interesting, and I appreciate you giving me the um, highlights and uh, to the listeners as well. But obviously there are some Uh, questions that I um, have, and really mainly the questions are going to be centered on the practicality of certain things. So um, I want to get your opinion about two things, uh, because there's a common theme. Um, Hagob mentioned the category of risk stratification and trying to look at, you know, the TP53, the NPM1, uh, whether you do this with a variety of techniques. Similar to to, to you, uh, Ellie was talking about the MRD assessment, which in my simple mind, it's almost stratification. If you're MRD positive at the end of therapy, you're higher risk than if you're MRD negative. And in fact, what Ellie said, you can even avoid transplant for some of these uh, situations that are MRD negative. So my questions to both of you, and I'll start with Ellie, do you see this is happening in the real world? It, when you talk to your colleagues outside of Anderson, uh, whether it's community practice, less resourceful university settings, do you see the risk stratifications, the MRD assessments, are they done up to what you expect them to be done in the trials that you are quoting?
2: Shadi, I think leukemia in the United States of America should be treated in a center of excellence and not in the community. Uh, ALL is a rare disease, and then we've seen patients receiving treatment in a community in a very suboptimal way. I think at least patients diagnosed with leukemia should be referred to center for excellence. There's data published and reported, for example, in AML. If you treat in, in anti designated centers, the outcome is much better. I give an example in AML at MD Anderson, our mortality during induction is less than 3%. So when you go to the community and other centers where supportive care may not be optimal decision maker or not so great, that death in CR early on is 10 to 15%, and that can compromise the outcome. So I think these patients should be referred to centers of excellence and be receiving care over there.
1: But it just doesn't but happen. Take, I mean, the reality is it doesn't Shadi's, happen. Yeah. Yeah. So but let's take Shadi's question and let's address first the MRD. So should the NGS, MRD, and ALL
2: be a new standard of care? Absolutely. I think Absolutely, it should be because it gives you two layers, two logs of depth of the response. And this test can be done on a bone marrow today and the future can be done on purple blood. So I think we should assess MRD from the beginning, have a sample sent at, at the baseline to establish clonality and at assessment of a CR and months thereafter.
0: So that's question then to Hagob, if, if basically to answer the MRD, but then is there a threshold that you guys have agreed on that this is the threshold where you call somebody MRD negative? That's one question. And is there an agreement on the technology, which technology to use?
1: So Shadi, let's distinguish measuring MRD and ALL from measuring MRD and AML. In ALL, the next generation uh, measurement of MRD for the immunoglobulin heavy chain uh, improves the detection of residual disease uh, from one in 10,000 to one in a million. And there's no doubt that the relapse rate is significantly lower in a patient that reaches an NGS MRD negative, so zero cells in a million cells that are detected. The Only issue is we don't have the large numbers to start making the statements. There are pilot studies from our institution and elsewhere that show that in ALL, a patient who is NGS MRD negative has a much lower relapse rate. Actually in small numbers, it's uh, as close as 0% and uh, two to three year survival of 90%. All we need is to increase the numbers to show that NGS MRD negativity is superior to flow cytometry MRD negativity. And then how do we use this? We can use it to change therapy in patients who may remain positive and also in patients who are NGS MRD negative for a certain period of time, say six months or a year, we could stop therapy. So instead of going blindly with three years of intensive chemotherapy, we can then say, if somebody is receiving one form of therapy, let's say in inoblina, and they have become NGS MRD negative at three months and they remain negative for the year, can we stop the treatment and will that imply a relapse rate of 0%? So the NGS MRD and ALL, I think it's gonna be very, very important. It should penetrate the community practice very quickly. And the sooner we get the large numbers of patients, the faster we can convince both the investigators in ALL and the community practice to change our practices to target NGS MRD status. In AML, it's a
0: different issue. Before before we go to AML, just before we go to AML, Ellie, for ALL, if you have ALL pH positive, you are obviously using a TKI along whatever treatment you're using for pH-positive disease. Um, Are these patients more likely or less likely to get
2: MRD negativity? Um, I mean, do you see that? uh, You know what I mean? Shadi, great to ask me about this question because I want to bring up something to you. You asked me if what we're doing can be taken to the community and uh, the MRD, we discussed it. I think if we improve the outcome in the pH-positive you need to improve the MRD negativity. And to that point, we have two great drugs, bulenitimumab and ponatinib. Together, when given together, we're suppressing resistance that can be driven by the acquisition of a mutation called t 359 and we're deepening the molecular response by going from 50% with hypercephalic or imatinib to 90%, essentially everybody respond. But then the question, how we can take this regimen and make it standard of care? Right now, we have around 100 patients in the Anderson treated and elsewhere people using Blenna and Dezatib or others. But the problem is when you give hyper-CVAD or chemotherapy plus DKI and you go for transplant, we talk about a long-term treatment. Compliance is an issue, delivering a treatment, complications, being in the hospital. And for that, you're not getting optimal response and not optimal outcome. If you give Blenna ponative therapy for five to six months and all being given as an outpatient, you for your healthcare system, you're doing much right. better. Right. And for the people with a lower income or uh, would not as privilege, they can get treatment for six months and keep working without right. much side effects. So I think right. this treatment will change the life of people across the world.
0: i go back to you about MRD and AML. I think you were trying to talk about this. Um, tell us a little bit your views on MRD and AML.
1: So let me first address MRD in Philadelphia positive ALL because it brings another layer. So traditionally, we're used to measuring the PCR, right. which looks at 100,000 cells. But the NGS MRD looks at a million cells. So now we're doing both the PCR and NGS MRD in Philadelphia positive ALL. And again, how will this help us? Today, in Philadelphia positive ALL, we're doing ponatinib map and then ponatinib goes indefinitely. If we can get to a point in time where we find that patients are not only PCR negative, but MRD negative at, a, at, a, at the measurement of a million cells, and they remain so for, let's say, three plus years, we could start implementing what was implemented in chronic myeloid leukemia with the durable deep molecular response and treatment interruption. So actually, one of the aims of our studies in Philadelphia positive ALL is to measure the NGS-MRD, and if it's negative for three to five years or more, we're going to discuss with the patient stopping therapy and see if we can cure Philadelphia positive ALL the same way as is done today in chronic myeloid leukemia. Let's go now to acute myeloid leukemia, and in acute myeloid leukemia, we don't have the level of sophisticated residual disease measurement. We can measure uh, APL, PML, RAR-alpha, and the core binding factor acute myeloid leukemias by PCR. And when we do this, uh, it is a very effective modality to predict for lack of relapse. So PCR negative status in APL and in CBF-AML predicts for lack of relapses. So that's very important. Among the other patients, people have been able to develop uh, PCR technologies for NPM1. So that's a technology that could be applied to the NPM1-positive patients to try to look at residual disease and then perhaps decide on transplant or no transplant in the other patients. If you take the rest of the patients with AML using flow cytometry for MRD measurements, the positive flow cytometry MRD predicts for a high rate of relapse, but a negative flow cytometry MRD does not protect from a substantial rate of relapse. So in my book, even though people say, well, we're going to look at the pretreatment characteristics and then the flow cytometry MRD status and refer to transplant only the patients who are MRD positive, I still find that, on the av- in the average patient, doing a transplant is giving us still better results than not doing the transplant. And the fact that a patient has become flow cytometry M R D negative, particularly if they have high risk features at the past, those patients cannot be spared the option of a transplant. On average, a transplant will be better than a no transplant.
2: Dr. Kintarshan, can I ask a question, Charlie? So for the FLIT3 ITD positive AML, if we have a very potent FLIT3 inhibitors and in a way to assess the depth of the response like we have in ALL, you think the FLIT3 ITD AML would be like PH positive ALL? Correct. So that's a
1: different issue that Elie is suggesting because we know that the FLIT3 inhibitors are quite potent, particularly the third-generation ones, gilteretinib, and perhaps guisartinib. It is possible that in the future, once we incorporate the FLT3 inhibitors with the intensive chemotherapy and perhaps with some form of venetoclax, that the patients who become FLT3 MRD-negative by some form of superior measurement, PCR, some measure that looks at 100,000 or a million cells. Those patients who are FLT3 mutated, either FLT3 ITD or TKD, once they receive the FLT3 inhibitors, we could look at residual disease and decide not to take those patients to transplant if they have become MRD negative in this setting.
0: We're gonna do we're gonna do some lightning rounds because I know that uh, you've been very generous with your time, but uh, it's so much fun. But we're gonna do lightning rounds. What that means? is we're going to do like quick questions and answers, right? So, Ellie, my first question is to you, and actually it's an AML. Is there any scenario where you would not use venetoclax in older patients with AML?
2: Maybe in IDH1, I will use HMA-IDH1 inhibitor. But that being said, I favor HMA triplet, not doublet. means I will do HMA-Ven-IDH1 inhibitor or HMA-Ven plus other targeted attacks. Another
1: subset are the TP53 and MECOM AML. Uh, They are the worst of the worst, and the addition of venetoclax would not help them much.
0: Hagob, is there any situation whatsoever in AML that you would use 3 and 7 alone?
1: I have never used 3 plus 7 throughout my career since 1982, so I'm not going to change that now.
0: What do you mean you have never used 3N7?
1: <laughs> when I started, we were into the high-dose C regimen, so we went with the IDA high-dose RSC, and subsequently, we went to the FLAG-IDA, the CLIA, with the additional... Okay, fine. Time. I'll get you another one. Is
0: there any situation in young, fit patients with AML that you would not recommend consolidation allogeneic transplant?
1: Acute promyelocytic leukemia, core binding factor, acute myeloid leukemia. Otherwise, the, even the leukemia group at MD Anderson is divided. I try today to refer all patients to transplant, and then I will look in the large proportion of patients to see which patients may or may not benefit. Uh, within our group, there are younger people who are deciding on transplant based on the uh, risk at the start and the MRD status. So many um, leukemia doctors say, if I have a patient with the normal karyotype, uh, NPM1 positive, FLT3 negative, and MRD negative, I'm not going to take them to transplant. So there are a bit of a differences in opinion, but on average, the allogeneic transplant will be better.
0: Kelly, Quick question, although the answer may not be lightning round, because I do think it could be complex. There are many folks out there that would argue that you still need randomized controlled trials in certain scenarios. I'll give you a scenario and have you react to it. MRD-positive disease, definitely prognostic. Patients with MRD-positivity definitely do worse than MRD-negativity. But Many academicians would say we don't have data to act on MRD positivity without a randomized study. In other words, they would, if you have an MRD positive disease patient, they would prefer to randomize to immediate therapy or treatment at the time of morphologic relapse or something that suggests relapse beyond MRD. What do you say to these folks?
2: Excuse me, Shadi. Uh, there's nothing minimal about MRD. MRD means relapse, and we know historical outcome is really poor of a median survival in a little 12 months with or without transplantation. So we added the blina to patients who are MRD positive, And a survival in a large trial from Europe showed a median of three-year survival at MDNS in the five years survival, 60%. How wanna be a randomizing patient to, no chemo- to to transplant or standard care chemo- chemotherapy versus what's effective? I think. We are, as Dr. Kentarjian mentioned, we're exploring in a Bayesian design fashion. We're not at a place to do a randomized trial right now for such a thing.
1: She you. was your question about
2: AML or ALL?
0: This was on ALL, but I will ask you about AML. Same question.
1: So I think randomized trials are the standard of care. This is how all of us have been indoctrinated and educated. Randomized trials are the only way to make progress. But if you look at multiple aspects of life, for example, the way we live, we're not living in a randomized fashion. When we send our our kids to school, we do not randomize one child to school A and another to school B. When you uh, are trying to pick your spouse, you don't go 50 times with, candidate A and 50 times with the candidate B and then... Well, me, I,
0: I think I think that, well, Ellie and I may disagree on that. We probably want to be randomized.
1: Actually, what you do is you, you gain be experience and as you have encounters, you, you apply your knowledge to the next situation. So, in leukemias, I think randomized trials have still a role and they have a very important role in the two extremes. If you have a land of research desert where you have only one drug to test and the results are so bad, or in the opposite situation where the cure rate is so high, like in childhood ALL, people are reluctant not to go with randomized trials. However, when you are in a land of research plenty where you have multiple new drugs that you are trying to incorporate into your standard of care, In ALL, for example, blinatumumab, inotizumab, possibly the new CD20 antibodies, possibly venetoclax, and possibly the CAR T cells. I think in that setting, a Bayesian approach will be much more effective in getting you fastest to the ideal regimen, the ideal regimen that you can then compare to whatever standard of care you want. But let's take the example of Philadelphia positive ALL. So now we have studies with desatinid uh, blenatumumab and with ponatinib-blenatumumab, which are giving a CMR rate close to 90% and the four-year survival of 90%. So people want to randomize what will be the control arm. Will it be hyper-CVAD imatinib or hyper-CVAD And if I tell the patient, that the standard arm historically has a four-year survival of 60 or 70%, will they agree to be randomized? So remember, Shadi, the essence of a randomized trial is what is, what is called equipose, meaning that you as a physician do not have any knowledge that tells you that perhaps arm A is better than arm B. So if you can go to the patient and say, that you do have equipos. so you tell the patient in all transparency, I really do not know in this trial whether ponatinib or desatinib lena is superior to hypercived imatinib, and therefore I'm going to randomize you. And if the patient, knowing the historical data, agrees to that, then it's fine. But this is the essence of a randomized trial it implies equipose, meaning that the physicians truly and honestly do not know which of the two
2: arms is going to be superior or inferior. And Shadi and Ash, there was a presentation from the French group at where he compared uh, two cohort competition, not in the Maestral, but he compared, for example, high-risk ALN who received induction therapy and standard consolidation in the past, to a recent one where they have high risk taking chemotherapy and the blender. And he showed in a comparison that the is superior. So essentially, this is the kind of things that everybody is using. it.
0: I example. can honestly t- talk to you guys for hours. Uh, I really, uh, I'm very grateful. This is the best inaugural podcast I've done. The first episode. I mean, if folks don't listen to future episodes after this, they are foolish. How could they not? When you start... But you know, I feel bad for the future guests to be honest. I mean, after this, I don't know, they have big shoes to fill. I'm very grateful for uh, your time, Doctors Hagop Kantarjan and Ellie uh, Jabour. Anything that you want to say, final thoughts before uh, I let you go back, uh, Hagop to painting and uh, Ellie to really doing leukemia stuff.
1: Good to reconnect with you, Shadi, and stay safe and we'll see you at Ash. Shadi, I'll see you at Ash. You Thanks, are guys.
2: very promising.